enough. You can be anything in the world, and God we trust. An architect, doctor, maybe an actress, but nothing comes easy. It takes much practice. Like I met a woman who's becoming a star. She was very beautiful, leaving people in awe. Singing songs, Lena Horne, but the younger version hung with the wrong person. Got a stronger than her when cocaine, sniffing up drugs, all in the nose. Could have died so young. Now looks ugly and old. No fun, 'cause now when she reaches for hugs, people hold their breath. 'Cause she smells of corrosion and death. Watch the company you keep and the crowd you bring. 'Cause they came to do drugs and you came to sing. So if you're gonna be the best, I'ma tell you how. Put your hands in the air and take the vow. I know I can. I know I can be what I wanna be. be, what I wanna be. If I work hard at it, I'll be where I wanna be. Thank you for tuning in to WVON 1690 Talk of Chicago, the voice of the nation. I am your queen, the educator extraordinaire, Dr. Sonia Whitaker. And it is on this show that I will continue to shine a spotlight on any and all issues that directly or indirectly impact public education. Now, before I get too far ahead of myself, Let's pause for just a moment and pay our respects to Associate Judge of the Supreme Court of the United States of America, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. As we are aware, in addition to her tireless service to our country, she is the first woman and the first Jewish woman to lay in state at the Capitol. And on another very serious note, I'd like to dedicate this broadcast in honor of Breonna Taylor, who because of her death will never have the opportunity to fulfill her lifelong dreams. With that being said, I think it is absolutely necessary for me to share with you that on what's really going on We're going to go hard week after week after week. We're going to be hard on issues, but soft on people. Yes, hard on issues and soft on people. And the reason why we're going to do so is because this is not personal. It's business. In fact, I'm the deputy superintendent of schools for Dalton West School District 148, located in Riverdale, Illinois, And this time, probably like many school district officials, for the first time since the pandemic outbreak, I actually had an opportunity after a board meeting to look around my office. I'm going to have a few pieces of artwork, not many, but just a few. And uh, when I had this moment, I looked up and saw one that I hadn't paid much attention to before. Um, It was simple, and it had um, a few simple words. And the statement that it had on it was, kids are my business. And... In the words of a good friend of mine, the first thought I had was, that's what's up. You see, kids are our business. And so, again, when I say that we're going to be hard on issues and soft on people, it's not personal. Kids are indeed our business. And speaking of kids, i got to tell you all something. Um, after, my la- after my inaugural show last week, I heard from people from all over the country. You're talking about a humbling experience. And they began to talk with me about the content of the show, 
congratulated me, thanked me for being willing to say things that most people won't. But what I learned, I'm going to be totally and completely honest. I don't think I had a full handle last week on who my audience was. Um, I, I made some fundamental assumptions. What I didn't expect to learn was that my audience actually consists of children. I was like, what? You had your children sitting there listening to me? Yes, children are actually waking up this morning to a bowl of Cheerios and listening to what's really going on. And just so you know, I'm not just talking about black and brown children. I'm talking about white children. I learned that this week. I had no idea. I I didn't expect that. And quite frankly, I didn't know what to make of that at first. That's why it's good to talk to people so you know what's really going on. And what else I want you to know is I'm not talking about high school kids or, as we say in my family, the grown kids. I'm talking about kindergarten students, first grade students, sixth grade students, seventh grade students. I'm telling you that my listening audience actually is consisting of whole families, black families, white families, brown families. And I wanted to share that with you. Having such a wide audience, I must admit, I feel like I've got a little bit of pressure on me, most specifically because the children are listening, literally. And I think that's a really good thing. And I think that's a good thing because today, although black children are impacted negatively in the most profound way, what I've learned is white children are actually also being impacted. We are in a national crisis. As far as I am concerned, we are experiencing a crisis uh, relevant to the pandemic outbreak, but we are also experiencing another pandemic outbreak, and that is associated with racial injustice and it is associated with the racial tensions that are occurring in our country today and so what my listeners taught me this week is that white children don't know what to make of that and many of us went through our entire childhood not talking about race now I didn't ask my mother for permission to say this I meant to mention this mother when I called you this morning but See, in my family, my parents taught us not to be racist. And so we actually didn't talk about race at all. So I become an adult and I have experiences and I talk to mom and dad and they help me out a lot. But the point that I want to make is, again, because my parents wanted to make sure that we did not grow up to be racist. We didn't have that conversation. I can't help but to imagine my listeners, right, some black children, some white children who are sitting in front of the television or the radio right now and listening to me, and they grew up or are growing up in a home, well, they haven't had these conversations, but they turn to CNN like and see in front of me now, or they turn to another channel or even between the commercial, and they see people marching and protesting, and they see people of color and people that look like them angry and upset. I guess where I'm going with this is my question is where do we provide for opportunities for black and white folks and brown folks to talk about race? Where do we provide for opportunities for black and white children to get together and have conversations about one another and have 
conversations about race relations so that neither of them grow up to become a part of the problem, either intentionally or unintentionally. I need you all to rock with me on this point because I believe that we need to do something with that. So my passion for wanting black, brown, and white children to be at the table and a part of this conversation was really ignited recently. My son is a junior in college, and he's a lacrosse player. And uh, when he returned home a few weeks ago, um, one of his white male friends and fellow lacrosse players from high school came over to the house. And after spending some time uh, in the basement playing video games and listening to very, very loud music, his friend came upstairs, and I was, uh, I was watching television. In fact, unfortunately, it was right around the time of the killing of George Floyd. So believe it or not, I was actually baking cookies. I'm not so sure how good they were, but I was baking cookies. And, um, and he came to the kitchen, which shocked me because, you know, you're not supposed to talk to your, I don't know about in your house, but my kids are real cool. I've not convinced them that mama's cool yet, but they're real cool. And they say, do not talk to my friends. That's, that's not cool. So when he came to me in the kitchen, I didn't really know what to make of that, but I was watching uh, protesters. And he looked like he wanted to say something. And I said, is everything okay? And he looked at me and he said, I love you, Mrs. Whitaker. I absolutely could not believe that happened. Now, um, at that moment, you all know me. I wanted to talk to him about race relations. But I knew my child was going to kill me if I did that. So I didn't. But I actually mentioned it to his mother, and this morning it was on my spirit again. And so I truly believe, I've known that child since he was a baby boy, I truly believe that he wanted to engage in a conversation about race relations and that he trusted me, and I didn't know that he loved Mrs. Whitaker, um, but he didn't know how to do it, where to do it, and why he should do it. And so um, I think that that's really, really important. Now, remember... What's really going on on this show? We are going to not just talk about education singularly. The purpose of this show, and I'll remind us each and every time, is to focus on issues that directly or indirectly impact public education, race relations being one of them. So switching gears for just a moment, let me bring the people who are just tuning into what's really going on for the first time up to speed. So those of you who were with me last week, just bear with me and let me tell this quick story again. I've been asked by the listening audience to make sure I share with new people who are going to be on today. Um, I began to, in the last episode, I began to address the issue of low literacy in America and its impact on black children experiencing the impact of poverty, which included white children. I indicated, and I still believe, that low literacy is indeed the silent killer. And as I shared last week, my beliefs and passion from this topic, for this topic rather, came as a direct result of me serving as a school principal in the northwest suburbs of Illinois. And as a principal, I had a teacher call down to the office and she shared with me that there was a child, he was kicking and screaming, being completely honorary and off task. Because I had faith in this teacher, I allowed her to bring the student down 
And before he made it to the office, I had actually called his mother already. So once the student made it to the office, I asked him to be seated. I intended for him to follow directions, and I stepped out to engage in a conversation with the teacher about what had actually occurred. Moments later, I returned to the office, and I was taken back, I must admit, because even though he was given explicit instructions to remain seated, he had got out of his seat and was talking to the secretary. At the end of the day, what the secretary shared with me is actually the motivation behind the work that I do every day. The minute that I walked out of that office, she told me he walked over to her desk. He looked her square in the eye and he asked, Is there anybody in this school who can teach me how to read? Is there anybody? And at that moment, I was changed. It didn't matter that people referred to me as Dr. Whitaker. It did not matter to me that I had an experienced staff. The only thing that mattered is that there was a child on my watch who was dying to matter. And as far as I am concerned, he had made up in his mind that he was going to be good at being good or he was going to be good at being bad. But he was going to be really good at something. And so I thought so much of that experience that I began to talk about it and research about it, and I wrote a book about it. My book is entitled, Is There Anybody Who Can Teach Me How to Read? Practical Strategies for Dramatically Improvement, Proving Student Learning. With that being said, I want to drive home a point that is very, very important for me to make. As a direct result of these experiences, I am here to announce that I, Dr. Sonia Whitaker, intend to start a literacy movement. And I'm looking for people who are serious about this work to join me. And the theme of that movement is a more literate America. And so I want to draw your listening attention to a research report that I actually tweeted this morning, and it is entitled Crisis Point, State of Literacy in America. And I just want to read four quick statistics. The United States is facing a literacy crisis. Did you know that more than 30 million adults in the United States cannot read write or do basic math above a third grade letter, le- excuse me, above a third grade literacy level. And children whose parents have low literacy levels have a 72% chance of being at the lowest reading levels themselves. These children are more likely to get poor grades, display behavioral problems, and have high absenteeism. In addition, 
75%. This brings me to my special guest that I'll have on uh, later on after the commercial break. I'm excited to introduce you to my special guest. But did you know that 75% of state prison inmates did not complete high school or can be classified as low literacy? And that's according to the RAND report entitled Evaluating the Effectiveness of Correctional Education. And low literacy, bringing me back to my last um, interview and guest with Dr. Burt, low literacy is said to be connected to over $230 billion a year in health care costs because almost half, almost half of Americans cannot read well enough to comprehend health information which means that they incur higher health costs. So when Dr. Sonia Whitaker tells you on WVON 1690 AM Talk of Chicago on what's really going on, that she intends to start a literacy movement and to call that movement a more literate America, I need you all to have a great appreciation for that. Now, I want to take a moment, if that's not enough, I got to share something with you. I want to take a moment uh, so that we can ask ourselves, how far have we come as a nation as it relates to increasing the likelihood that all students have equitable access to a quality education? And then my second question is, and is the quality of education that a student receives who then becomes an adult tied to his or her zip code. And is that by design? With that being said, I'm going to tell you, um, most of you should already know that just over a year ago marked the 65th anniversary of Brown versus Board of Education. And Brown versus Board of Education was the United States U.S. Supreme Court grand ruling that stated segregation in schools as being unconstitutional. So I asked myself as I worked with various different organizations to to look at how far we've come, the question, how far have we come and where do we go from here? Now, for my researchers out there, I'm going to quote, Four statistics from a research report entitled 65 Years After Brown versus Board of Education, Harming Our Common Future. And here's where we are. Today, in the United States of America, black students attend schools with a combined black and Latino enrollment averaging 67%. Latino students attend schools with a combined black and Latino enrollment averaging 66%. And white and Asian students have much less exposure to black and Latino students at 22 and 34% respectively. The reality Today, in the United States of America, that is America's schools have re 
segregated. We've resegregated, guys, and it is important that we do not fall asleep at the wheel. Right now, on my watch and your watch, our schools have resegregated. And so when we ask ourselves, what is it going to take to cause for a statistically significant improvement in student learning, particularly as it relates to the achievement levels of all students, but more specifically, children of color and children experiencing the impact of poverty, which include white children, the one thing that we have to be cognizant of is that we are indeed trying to accomplish the goal of equity within segregated systems in 2020. And the United States of America. Now, I think that it is important for me to pause just for 30, 20 seconds and let what I just said resonate in your spirit. And if what I have shared with you is not enough, I also want to restate the significant contributing factor related to low literacy in the black community in particular is related to the fact that these students show up to school every single day and they are presented with a curriculum that tells them that they don't matter, that people that look like them made absolutely no contribution to society outside of being slaves. And we want to know why these kids are blowing each other's face off. We want to know what could have been one of my former students attempted to carjack me. And we want to know why they're dropping out of school. And we want to know why they're bored. Because we are providing them intentionally, in some cases, unintentionally, in other cases, with the curriculum that tells them they don't matter. And so why do I continue to address this topic? Why is this topic important? This topic is important, you all, because in the words of Dr. Christine Sleater, she writes in her book entitled, Unstandardizing the Curriculum. Curriculum, and who gets to define it, is political because knowledge in a multicultural democracy cannot be divorced from larger social struggles. I got to repeat that last part. Curriculum and who gets to define it is political because knowledge in a multicultural democracy cannot be divorced from larger social struggles. Okay, so I got to go there. We, regardless of your political affiliation, we are near the end of a presidential election. I have stated time and time again that we need, and more formally, nationally today, a more literate America. Now, with all due respect to both candidates, and pardon my ignorance, but with four degrees in education, having served at every level of the system possible, I'm not so sure that I can speak intelligently about either of the candidates education platform is it available in writing i'm sure it is that's not the point that i'm making i'm gonna say and i'm i'm gonna go off a little bit but script i'll say 
I have, okay, I'll call it a Sonya Whitaker-ism. One of my Sonya Whitaker-isms is it drives me crazy that during, say, the presidential debates or during important conversation about what's happening in our nation, education is always last on the agenda. That drives me nuts. It drives me nuts. I think that there should be one night, one presidential debate where they focus on the facts that I have presented here today. I'm saying that a greater majority of the amazing human beings in America are not literate. And so I can't even imagine how can we, we can plan to move forward as a nation and not know what the plans are to support this movement that I'm starting toward a more literate America. And so for those of you with connections, that's what we want. We want the presidential candidates to get together and present to us what their plans are. And, you know, I don't expect, remember, hard on the issue, soft on people. I don't expect either of them to know everything about education. But I'll tell you what does concern me. What does concern me is who does and will advise them. Because if he or her is not grounded in social justice, if he or her is not knowledgeable of how curriculum impacts black and brown children and white children who are trying to figure out what's really going on, that's problematic in nature. And so what I want to suggest is that in addition to the next president, whomever he may be, the next most important appointment that could be made is that of Secretary of Education for the United States of America. So with that being said, I want to make one other very, very important point related to curriculum, instruction, and materials, because as has been said, it is political And who gets to define what we learn actually matters. And so I need educators and policymakers and community members to join me in this literacy movement so that we can take a more proactive approach to resolving the issues that matter to all of us, regardless of our ethnic background. So I also want to quote um, Dr. Sleater one more time and then move into two more points about a research report before we go to commercial break. Dr. Christine Sleeter tells us that education is a means by which a society defines itself and forms the consciousness of the next generation. She adds, the school curriculum communicates what we choose to remember about our past, what we believe about the present, and what we hope about the future. Furthermore, she adds in her book where she quotes Jay Zimmerman, who states, It has long mattered because at stake was nothing less than the nation's definition of itself. So I want to quote a a research report entitled Chronically Absent. And I'm not talking about being chronically absent from school. In fact, the title of this report is Chronically Absent, the exclusion of people of color from New York City elementary school curricula. 
It is a report from the New York City Coalition for Educational Justice. Now, the key findings from this report are as follows. First of all, it's important to know that to discover whether New York City curricula represented the student population, the Center for Equity and the Transformation of Schools partnered with the New York University Metropolitan Center to examine more than 700 books across 10 commonly used English language arts curricula and book lists in New York City public schools. And here is what they found. Are you ready for this? This might be a real good time to grab a pen and a piece of paper. They, scov- they discovered that Latinx, which had 41% of New York City public school students, so n- that population makes up, the Latin students make up 41% of the student population. However, of the 71 authors in the Teachers College Reading and Writing Project K-5 through curriculum, there is not a single author or a single cover character of Latinx descent. And Latinx children who comprise the largest racial ethnic group in New York City schools are by far the most underrepresented in the curriculum. That's what the research report found. The other uh, thing that they found was that black students make up 26% of New York City public school students. And guess what they discovered? Grab your pen, grab your pen, grab your pen. Of the 74 books in the K-5 through grade ReadWorks curriculum, there were only four black authors. White students who make up 15, only 15% of New York City public school students. Out of those students, white children benefited from a diverse curriculum as much as children of color do. That's the reality. And yet, 140 books on New York City's Read 365 book list, 118 are by white authors. Incredible. And Asian students who make up 16% of New York public school students, 82% books in the K-5 grade, Great Mind curriculum, had only one author of Asian descent. And the last point that I want to make here, animal characters. Did you know, relevant to black and brown children, that the research report found that when they read those reading materials, that they had more access to books with animals in them than they had access to books with literature that reflected their spirits and their lives. So I have one question for you all before we go to commercial break. What's really going on? You can't grow your money under your mattress, so stop it. Learn how to protect it and build wealth. Tune in Sundays to protect your money and build your wealth. Powered by Top & Top Insurance Agency, I'm Betty Top. And I'm Clyde L. Top. Our show will change your financial future and legacy. We talk about protecting your assets, 401ks, annuities, life after retirement, the differences and benefits of life insurance. And we'll take questions. Call us, mention WVON, and get a free financial consultation, 773-881-8110. 
Tune in Sundays at 3 p.m. to protect your money and build your wealth. Powered by Top and Top Insurance Agency. WVON is everywhere you are. On your radio, on your internet. And now, hey Alexa, play WVON 1690 AM. Getting WVON 1690 AM station from iHeartRadio. Try it out for yourself. America is listening to WVON. for tuning in to WVON 1690 AM Talk of Chicago, the voice of the nation. I am your queen, the educator extraordinaire, Dr. Sonia Whitaker. And before I bring on my guest, I would like to take one of our callers. Mr. Earl? Yes. Let your you? voice fill this airway. I'm awesome. Ah, uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm enjoying your conversation this morning, and I completely agree with uh, everything you've said today. I come from a uh, family that was filled with educators. My mother was an educator. Both of her sisters were uh, educators. My grandmother and auntie were educators. My uncles were uh, principals. So I, you know. Education is steeped in my family. Deep. But the uh, argument I wanted to say mm-hmm. is we are facing a time where democracy, as we have been taught, mm-hmm. uh, is about to be completely undermined if Trump gets another cycle in. And uh, in these kind of dire situations, I understand why many of the news stations run with Trump rather than education or George Floyd and those kinds of things. Because it seems like what we were taught to believe in high school and college uh, is about to end if Trump gets another election and the Republican Party is about to go along with it. So I really love your topic. It's deep to my family, and I completely support you. Thank you. I really need your support. I really need your support. We're going to jump on and try to get one more caller in, okay? Keep calling and keep listening. Miss Lori, let your voice fill the airway, please. Okay, Miss Lori is not there. So I want to bring on my special guest. My special guest is Lieutenant Robinson. And I'm excited about my special guest because not Mr. Lieutenant Robinson is actually a high-ranking veteran law official, 
And equally, if not more importantly, this is my baby brother, you all. And the reason why I'm bringing him on to this show is because I've talked about the impact of low literacy in healthcare. Now I want to talk for just a few minutes about what that looks like in prisons. And and what sparked me to have this conversation, you all have to hear this, is uh, my family, we don't just get together and have a good time. We We get real deep on both sides of the families. And a couple, two Thanksgivings ago, I was talking with my brother and about low literacy. And I said, hey, bro, that's what I call him. I said, what does this look like in, pris- in the prison? And he told a story that I got to share with you all. He said, sis, he said, our prisoners have to go to their GED classes. And if they don't go to GED classes, it's so hard for me to tell this story. Um, sometimes they have to get put in a hole. And what I learned about how important it is that all children, and more specifically black children, black boys, become literate is that they're embarrassed when they're not. And even at the prison level, prison level, what I learned was that those black men that he was referring to would rather go and spend days in a hole, in a dark hole, as opposed to have to sit in the class and face the fact that they're illiterate so so bro i'm gonna give you just a few minutes here can you can you tell the listening audience who you are and just talk about what you shared with me at thanksgiving about what's happening um from a prison perspective we don't very often get access to officials at your level so i consider this an honor let it roll bro. absolutely, absolutely. Uh, good morning dr whitaker good morning chicago iHeartRadio listeners my name my name is lieutenant robinson i am a uh, lieutenant over special operations an emergency response team at a facility in the state of Georgia. Uh, my basic functions uh, consist of being in charge of gang suppression, also controlling the amount of drugs, and weapons, and cell phones that could potentially enter the prison on a daily basis. Okay. And can you talk to me about how low literacy uh, plays itself out in the prison setting? Yeah, just from a, from a human uh, standpoint, uh, one of my first experiences uh, from on the educational aspect of it, uh, I started receiving uh, disruption calls from a GD classroom in the last two to three years that uh, the inmates that were in the classroom were being insubordinate and disrespectful to the GD instructors. Uh, when I would arrive at the scene, uh, the GD the GD instructor would uh, advise me that the inmate was being belligerent, so we would remove the inmate, and we would place him into our administration segregation unit based on an insubordination charge or a failure to follow charge, uh, alluding to the fact that the inmate was in the classroom being disrespectful. Uh, on other occasions, there would be scenarios whereas the inmate was called out to participate in the GED classroom for that day, but he would not go. Uh, When I would speak to them and ask them for what reason they would not attend this classroom, knowing that 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 GED would help them once they got out. And let me me say this, is that the state of Georgia, um, a lot of times would put it as part of their package for early release or their parole. So I didn't understand why they would not participate in this classroom. And they would make blanketed comments as if they weren't learning anything or they didn't understand. And it just seemed like there was a lot of frustration that was behind that. Mm -hmm. It caused a lot of alarm for me. And then at some point in time, I was selected to be a part of the classification committee. 
And with the classification committee, what we do is we assess the um, threat level of the inmate, for instance, if they're part of a gang or where they need to be placed Mm -hmm. at, they need to be placed in protective custody, their health, and also their education is discussed in this classification committee. Now, the alarming thing was is that I didn't go into it with the intent of seeing this, Mm -hmm. but what stood out to me was about every 10 inmates that I would come to, and all were not black, but mostly were black, about every 10 inmates that I would come to, at least six to seven of those inmates had barely a ninth grade education. Wow. Uh, It was troubling. Well, and I, think, know, I appreciate um, you sharing that because we hear all these sophisticated reports about school-to-prison pipelines, and they're legitimate reports, but you're in there, right? right. And you see Absolutely. it day to day to day. I think that's a, a very important point to make. Listen, in the interest of time, can you tell me what it is you think that we should do to help increase the literacy achievement levels of the children who then become adults, unfortunately, far too many who report to your prison? I, I, I guess the question that I would ask is, is more or less what can society do okay. uh, to support uh, parents and to support educators? And when I say society, I mean by those of us individually, mm-hmm. uh, corporate America and our United States government, who has an obligation to um, to support their educators and their parents. Um, I look at you guys honestly um, as the real heroes. Parents, educators are the real heroes. Anytime that you wake up and you put somebody else's life before yours on a daily basis, Mm -hmm. on a daily basis, you are a person that needs to be cherished and to be supported and revered in every turn. Thank you. And I just want, Mm -hmm. yes, I just want to take that time to say thank you. And thank you to every parent and every educator that is listening today. Oh, bro, look at you. And one last thing now. Let's go back to, let's go back to Thanksgiving. When you and I finished that conversation, I said, well, what should your big sister do? Can you tell them what you said to me before you sign off? Yeah, I remember that conversation. Uh, I remember that conversation uh, very well. And when you asked me that question, you know, and I, and I looked at you and I and I told you, sister, I said, teach those guys, teach them how to read before they before they make it to me. Isn't that something? Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yes, ma'am. Now, I'd like to tune in to one other caller before we wrap up. Let's see. Oh. Okay, let's see. Good morning. Hi, how are you? Good morning, morning, uh, Dr. Whitaker. How are you this morning? I'm awesome. Let your voice feel this airway. Yes, ma'am. You've touched on some uh, some great points this morning, but as far as uh, the diversity of the curriculum, uh, you touched on Brown and how our schools have ultimately resegregated themselves. I'm curious, of, in your humble opinion, because oftentimes there's got to be choices uh, as far as what we can and cannot have in, in the education system. As an educator, which of these factors do you think will have the greatest impact in uh, uplifting things like literacy and educational attainment in our community? Do we, what do we need to emphasize? Because for me, uh, the resegregation of classrooms is not necessarily a red herring for me. That's just the, the nature of our society. Sure. Uh, we tend to segregate, unfortunately. Sure. And, but for us as black people, it signals resources. I think that was inherent exactly. in Brown versus Board. Exactly. When, we, when, we, when black people hear segregation, we hear resources. Right. And that's to me, is, if I had a heavily resourced, uh, predominantly black school, I, I can live with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
but with the things you raised about curriculum, I can't necessarily live with that. So and, what factors should we be fighting with? So I appreciate that. I, I appreciate you saying that because there are a number of different opinions about whether or not um, reset. We could do a whole separate show on whether or not uh, resegregation is an issue. I mean, a powerful show on that. But with that being said, I am appreciative of you mentioning the fact that the reason why that uh, resonates with me in particular is associated with the likelihood that students that are in different environments with kids that don't look like them with less affluent students are more likely to have less access to financial and technology, technological resources outside of the school day. That's why that matters. Um, I'm going to go back to uh, the curriculum. We have buying power. I said that last time I'm going to say it uh, on national and hopefully one day international television, meaning that the textbook companies, I think they mean well, But, again, I go back to the fact that we have a presidential election. We have some really smart folks in all levels of the system, even the classroom levels, that need to influence those books, how they're written. And that's going to be beneficial not only for black students, but that's going to be beneficial for white students also. Thank you for calling in. I got the the phone lines are blowing up here. Not going to be able to get everybody. I am so grateful that you called in. Please do call in next week because we're going to continue this conversation and we're going to take it to the next level. Before I sign off, I want everybody to repeat after me. I got a little activity. Sorry, got a doctorate, but I'm a teacher. So we're going to do a two-minute activity. And how are the children? Okay, when I say that, I want you to repeat it after me. I know you're doing it in the home setting. I see some of you on Facebook Live. Okay, and how are the children? Now your turn. And how are the children? All the children are well. I want you to repeat after me. Say, all the children are well. Nice job. Let me tell you where that came from. In Africa, there is a tribe referred to as the Messiah. And what makes this tribe so awesome is that the tribesmen within the villages in Africa, they pride themselves on the extent to which their children are well. So they think as a village that everything about every part of what makes them successful is inherently tied to the extent to which the children that they serve are well. What would happen if Congress opened a session by asking, and how are the children? And for those of, us, those of us that are in education, can you imagine what would happen if we opened a Board of Education meeting by asking, and how are the children? And soups, also known as superintendents, what if we started every conference with, and how are the children? My question to the listening audience today is based on the information that I shared last week, Based on the information that I've shared this Saturday, and we're going to go even, even deeper on next Saturday, what is our collective response as a nation? What is America's response to the question as it relates to educating children of color and children experiencing the impact of poverty, which include white children? How are the children? Are they well? 
Thank you for tuning in to WVON 1690, Talk of Chicago, the voice of the nation. I am your queen, the educator extraordinaire, Dr. Sonia Whitaker, and I am so looking forward to spending time with you again one week from today. Same time, same place. Chicago.